Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that didn't land man on the moon this week. I'm Andrew Page and he's Scott Phillips. No, I'm not. I'm Scott Phillips. He is Andrew Page. We didn't land on the moon this week, did we, mate? Uh, no. Bitcoin price landed on the moon almost, oh, but that's... Dear. See how quick I got that in there this that week? That was remarkable. I don't know, shall we... 30 seconds, mate? Let me check. Nope, less than 30 seconds. Well done. That's a record. That's a record. Well, the good news is we got that out of the way, so we don't have to talk about it ever again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> out of the system mate, um, You know what's... So let's, let's, let's start with a tangent. Um, apparently, and this is... I was saying this before we recorded. I didn't realize this was happening. And all of a sudden on Twitter, I see, watch live, man landing on the moon again. I was like, wow, I didn't realize that was happening. And then I kind of got distracted. And then I didn't see another single headline about the thing the entire time. And it's it's funny that, I I guess what I want to to observe is the, the thing that was so remarkable, like absolutely stunningly remarkable 50 years ago, now it's kind of interesting when it was live and then no one cares about it. We've all moved on to Taylor Swift or whatever else we've talked about this week. And there's just something kind of nice. We're going to talk about some tech companies later, but there's just something kind of nice about the whole, you know, the thing that was so monumental becoming almost pedestrian because that's just what happens with progress. Yeah, it, it is. It is so fascinating. I've often thought that if you, you time traveled someone from 100 years ago to the modern era, their brain would explode within oh, yeah. an hour. You know, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. it's just there's too much to take in. But it's, you know, it's, it's um, completely normal now that I can have this like magic bit of glass to access all of humanity's knowledge and talk and <laughs> see anyone on the planet and I know. have probes go to the distant reaches of the solar system. And it's like, yeah, oh, it's a Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah we've, right. we've sequenced the genome of yet another animal and, yes. uh, you know, modifying things at the molecular level and yes, we're now yes. creating silicon that can think you know like it's a mm-hmm. mind blow it really is I, the future's I was, uh, exciting yeah. I was just gonna say the future's exciting yeah. well the, the present's exciting right I mean I was telling me this during the week with someone and, and, and you know there's I know housing is a big deal and we've talked about that a lot and I don't really intend to talk about it again other than I know people are kind of really super fixated on it I'm like yeah you know what? that's an issue by the same token the increase in living standards writ large over the last century is just so phenomenally, phenomenally huge. And it's not to say, therefore, the, the problems of now don't matter. I've never said that. I never want to imply that. But it's kind of like someone said, oh, yeah, well, I can't get housing. I, I know I might be able to carry this thing around my pocket with all the world's information, but so what? Mm. I'm like, I just, I'm not entirely sure you got that proportion right. Like, yes, you need housing. You've, you've got it, by the way. It might not be secure. You might not be able to afford as much as you want, all that kind of stuff, which is real. But to blow off the last century of, of technological improvement, like, oh, yeah, who cares? Like, I don't really, you know, I, I get people fix that on their own problems. And I get that sometimes when you've got stresses, you know, I don't want to be insensitive to that. But when you kind of blow off all the things you just talked about on the basis of, yeah, well, so what? I, you know, I want to buy a house. Like, oh, I'm not sure you can just do that. There's, there's a lot going on, a lot that's happened, a lot that's happening right now. Um, imagine 10, 50, I've said so many times, the iPhone's 15 ish years old. Like, mm. that's not, even when you talk about the glass in the pockets, like, we kind of take it for granted. You don't have to go back to 1924, you can go back to 2004. Yeah. And and the, the the twenty years of innovation and technological just explosion is phenomenal. Well, that's what get, that's what really floors me is it's the compounding nature of things. Is that yes. you know progress has just uh, is just accelerating, yes. right? That's and it's sort of new breakthroughs beget even more breakthroughs, and it just it moves so fast. I mean, mm-hmm. we are currently living through at least half a dozen paradigm shifts right now, right? Yep. One of the one of the I forget. Was it Andreessen Horowitz or someone, 
some uh, Silicon Valley dude said, um, the future is already here. It's just yeah. not evenly distributed. Yeah. And um, I love that quote. I love it so much because when you look at all of the big sort of breakthroughs in time, I mean, there's, a, there's an instance at where it hits the mainstream. Mm. But what you realize is that, you know, for the previous 10, 20 years before that, there were plenty of garage tinkerers and the, the technology <laughs> was there mm. so to speak but there was a difference between someone inventing an internal combustion engine and the first model t rolling off the production line there was yeah, a, there's yeah. a very big sort of uh, difference there so you know it it, it is yeah it's it's oh, one thing i was just going to say on on your point of appreciation i think it's a good one like we are we are so much better off than than the richest person from a hundred years ago. Mm. My gripe would be just to again be the glass half empty kind of guy. Is that I think the the frustration for many comes. It's not so much that we aren't all richer. It's just that that those riches haven't been evenly shared or fairly shared. Is probably a better word. Fairly shared. Um, mm. In other words, um, you, there, it is potential that with all of that technological breakthrough and productivity gains that we would all have a much higher standard of living. Yeah, right, some, right, right. We've got the deck of billionaires out there and yet we've got a record number of people living in their cars. So I think that's that's the delineating factor for me. Not that we 100%. all have so much stuff here, but the, the, the way that that is sort of allocated among society. That's absolutely true. Uh, speaking of which, mate, not everyone has access to strawman.com, which as I know full well, but I need to let, remind you as a private online investment club, uh, right. which I believe you founded and started, although uh, I, I haven't seen proof of that yet. Uh, I, you may just be taking, uh, taking credit for someone else's hard work. Um, uh, I believe that's true. Is that right? Uh, it is. And if I was going to like, steal someone else's work i tell you what it'd probably be tesla or something a bit more amb amb <laughs> ambitious at Lassian or something but yes yes and uh, where are you from again what do you do uh, the motley fool funny uh, motley crew we, we, oh, we that's provide, right, we provide crew. investment advice to individuals um <laughs> fool.com.au uh <laughs> thank you for asking i appreciate it shameless plugs all over the joint right now and there that's just go. the way we roll around uh, yeah. mate um let's get on to the news of the week there's been a lot going on um starting with the macro as we do big news yesterday i say news i'm going to put news in inverted commas uh roy morgan the research mob are, are very credible very capable very serious people do a really good job uh the numbers though can be a little bit large and interesting they reckon as of yesterday 1.6 million australians are at risk of mortgage stress mm -hmm. uh massive 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 number uh it, it it i mean at some point i don't know if yeah, hard to know. Based on a sample, based on some arbitrary allocations of household spending, all that kind of stuff, 20% at extreme risk, another 12-odd percent at, at, at risk, at some risk of mortgage stress, based on a proportion of household income being put towards the mortgage. And I thought that was interesting, mate. Again, the numbers kind of... As, we, as with all things, you know, I talk about this with interest rates, but even with this sort of stuff, it's not even the numbers that matter, it's the direction, it's the change, right? Mm. So we see more people uh, struggling more people tipping over those arbitrary points. The direction, the, the you know, whether, whether it's 1.6 or 1.8 or 1.4, it's, I won't say it's irrelevant because there's real people in those numbers, but, you know, it's, it's an est a best guess estimate from a research mob who, you know, are, are absolutely putting their best effort into it, but you can't know for sure. Either what way- What was it that it was uh, Churchill said? Something about, um, you know, he's talking about death, but one death is a tragedy and, you know, a thousand is a, a statistic. So right. it's, it's kind of the same <laughs> right. with this, right? Yeah. 106, yeah. Yeah. 1.6, 1.8 million people in stress. But right. yeah, it's, very, it's very- from those numbers, yeah. You very true. Stuff out. Um, yeah. But mate, what I thought was, was worthy of, of comment was just that, as I said, the change in that number 
Also to, and again, we're going to get retail sales this week. We're recording this on Wednesday morning. Unfortunately, before both inflation and retail sales numbers are out this week. So we'll know more this time next week. But um, it's interesting that, so a couple of things, I suppose. The fact that prices keep going up continues to put pressure on households. We've talked about that a lot. Whether, by the way, not just mortgages, but renters and everything else. It's also true, I think, that if you look at the the so-called mortgage cliff as some sort of phenomenon at a national level didn't really eventuate, hasn't anyway. But there are there are thousands of mini cliffs. You know, every day, every week, every month, someone rolls over from their previously fixed rate to a new variable rate, and in doing so, that number does tend to. Uh, I mean, it must by definition impact on individuals, right? So it's ha- happened to a friend of mine just the other day speaking right. to them, and they were like, "Oh my gosh, what I have to pay per month is just like you know forex." <laughs> yeah, right, and it's, and it's crazy. So you kind of think about that, and think, okay, well, that, so that's that's happening in the background. So there are by definition more people who all of a sudden had this, we used to have this money left over. Now they've got to find a way to put it. Now hopefully a lot of them are already doing that. Um, so you know, anything's kind of anything's kind of. Um, justifiable, explainable, but it, it is just, it, it's a reminder that while we talk about the headlines a lot and the official cash rate as a single number, uh, the the roll on, I guess my, I'm an optimist, mate, you know this, and, and our, our listeners certainly know this. I'm just mindful that 2024, I think, could be tougher than many people had presumed. Um, the, the thought that once interest rates peak, therefore everything after that's going to be better. Um, mm. It'll be slightly better for most people as if and when rates start to fall. And as inflation becomes less of an issue, as you've said many, many times, prices haven't aren't going down; they're just not going up. So mm. there is no there is no relief valve here. If rates stop going up and inflation stops going up, we're just stuck at this higher plateau. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, nothing declines yet. Rates will come down at some point, probably this year, but maybe not. Um, maybe by a bit this year, maybe not. So there are hopefully some easier times ahead for individuals and for the economy. I just thought it was I just thought it was worth thinking about the. The impact on the economy right now and the fact that I just don't think, again, I'm not trying to worry anyone. I don't necessarily think there's an investing takeaway from this, uh, but I would be very, very, very loath to think we've passed some peak and therefore we're on the way down again because we're just not there yet. Yeah, no, 100% agree. I, I want to sort of underline the significance of that number. Let's Please. take it at, at face value, 1.6 million. Well, there's only something like, I mean, there's what, it's Australia, 25 million people, but it's something like 10 or 12 million households, mm-hmm. right? And we also know, so I'm going to do a bit of extrapolation here. And I don't know if they, when they talk about people, they're combining cup, like two people mm. in a couple or whatever. Yeah. So there, there's a bit of generalization here. So let's call it 12 million, keep the mass a bit easier, households. And let's say that 1.6 million of them are in stress. So, you know, the other third rent and the other um, third own their house outright. So they're never going to be in, in rental stress, uh, mortgage stress. As a percentage, you've that's what, 38% or something of, of households with a mortgage in yep. mortgage stress. So, they're, so on their numbers, mate, they have it as 32%. 30, okay, um, there you go. Okay. So, so I wonder if they must have combined yeah. couples or something I assume like they that. Must have, too. Yeah. 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 Okay. But, but. That is a that is a huge number. Now again, mm. let's let's sort of step back here. What do they mean by rental stress? It's sort of, in some way, in fact, in every way, arbitrarily defined as some threshold above of, of uh, some threshold proportion of total household income. And it's not as though you go from paying fifty nine percent of your income towards housing <laughs> to sixty one percent, and it, it's a right. big change. But you do have to draw that line somewhere, and it, it shows. Yeah. What it shows is it doesn't predict anything, but as I've said many times, it emphasizes the fragility of household budgets Mm. so that if there is a health 
uh, situation, if there is a employment, a change in employment circumstances, uh, if anything like that, there is just a lot less padding that might otherwise be available. Mm. So yeah, and like my mate, I mentioned my mate before, I mean, they'll be fine. They're not gonna be kicked out of their house, but I tell you what, they're gonna have to tighten their belts in a lot of other areas. That's right. And then, in fact, that's what he was complaining about. Um, <laughs> and and you know, they'll probably still be fine, but but mm. as I say, it's it's that it's that fragility ex, uh, uh, angle that that concerns me. And it's again, let's take their numbers, 38% proportion of mortgagees that are in that situation. That is a big number, man. That is a, that is a, that is a huge people. And that is a huge number of people. We, we, you often forget, and this is worth underlying, not to sort of scare everyone, but with, with markets, prices are determined at the margin. Correct. It'd be a bunch of, if it doesn't take 38% of people to default on their houses to send property down, I don't know, 20% or whatever. Mm-hmm. It could take 5%, yep. right? Because a lot of people just pull their head and go, well, I'm not selling. I'm just going to hold off for the time now. But then you get the people that are forced selling. Yep. Then you sort of get the psychological factors kick in. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying this is what's going to happen, but I'm trying to, again, underscore the significance of 38%. It is a very, very large mm-hmm. number of households. We haven't had a recession yet. As you, to your point, everyone was calling for one and didn't happen yet, at least. But I think it's not out of the realm. It's not a crazy thing to say we will have a recession at some right, point. Right, right. You know, I, I would bet a large sum of money over the next 10 years there'll be a mm, recession. Mm. And maybe it's in on the ninth year and maybe it's in, in a month. I don't know. But when it happens, there'll be a lot of households walking into that yep. in very precarious situations. And it's a concern. Yeah, because cycles happen, and that's that's the key one. I, I think, uh, to my mind, mate, I don't want to, I don't want to pre- pretend or, or imply I don't care about people who are in mortgage stress. But the bigger issue for the rest of us and for all of us is the impact on the economy, as you just talked about. I mean, that that the reality of money being sucked out of spending. Now, the money's going to go somewhere. You've made that point before, but the money gets mm. sucked out of spending by those households who all of a sudden have to pay more interest on their home loans that spending doesn't happen in the economy. Now, mm-hmm. for an economy that's, you know, when it grows at 2%, that's a good result. Uh, from two to zero is not far. And from zero to anything negative then becomes recessionary territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you if you suck two and a half percent of spending out of the economy, you take an economy growing at 2% or economy declining at half a percent. It's not that yep. simple, but it's not miles away either. Not, not far um, off. And I mean, there's government spending other stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to... Yeah, take it take it as a take it as a, a directional uh, thing rather rather than absolute. My point is, it doesn't take much for for positive growth to become negative. Remembering, of course, the last quarter we only grew at zero point two percent. Now, yeah. you know, continued interest rate increases during and since then. Uh, not, uh, since then, no, not since then. Uh, September, no, there was November. So yeah, what one more one more in the new in the new data? People rolling over from fixed to variable. Uh, again, I'm not, I'm not predicting anything at all. Uh, by the way, I saw an article in today's paper or yesterday's paper saying the leap year might save us from recession, which is fascinating. Wow. Adding adding an extra day. Uh, what do you think about 90 day quarter? You add an extra day, that's more than one percent. So yep. it's possible uh, that, that the extra day's <laughs> activity and spending may save us uh, from, if not recession, because maybe the next quarter is not negative either. But um, and these things these things are these things are small impacts. By the way, too. Plus 0.2 and minus 0.2 are effectively the same number for all intents and purposes. I yeah, mean, yep, they're not yep. on very, very large economies. The dollar values are huge. But if we, if we were to, you know, during the, the Swan Rudd uh, GFC response, the, the so-called cash splash, they avoided recession by the tiniest fraction because the economy grew at 0.1% in that second mm-hmm. quarter. Mm-hmm. Had it been minus 0.1%, we'd had a capital R recession and everything else. Do we really think that the circumstances are that different? 
And I'm going to say, and the, the numbers are estimates yeah. too. Let's just yeah, be clear here, true. right? They're not. It's yeah. not something like a hard, objective yes. number to the, I mean, to ten decimal yes. places. Yes. Which is that they're, they're extrapolations rather than pure estimates. Not just not yeah. finger in the air. They're taking no. data and, no. and extrapolate. But yes, you're right. But it's, it's an estimate. Not, yes, yes. yes. Um, and so you're right. Is it a big deal? Is it not a big deal? I mean, honestly, the, the, the growth number is not a big deal. If it's plus 0.1 or minus 0.1, it's kind of the same. I will say it's a massive deal if we do have a capital R recession because of the psychological impacts. The fact that everyone goes, oh, my God, we're in a recession. Let's then do something as opposed to, oh, we're not in a recession. Thank goodness. Uh, the, human, the, human, the behavioral psychology stuff, and yes, I bang on about it a lot, and I frankly don't do it enough, as I've said before, um, is, is enormous. You know, plus 0.1. And the other thing, by the way, if you have a, if you have a single quarter where you're minus half a percent, next quarter's plus 0.1, net, net, you're still minus 0.4, but you've avoided recession. Yeah. You have two quarters in a row that are minus 0.1, you're actually still better off. Yeah. But the fact that it's a capital R recession means the next time around, people freak out, they stop spending, all those things happen. Well, people stop em- uh, hiring, uh, employees, employers right. rather stop hiring. Is yes. all these ripple effects. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. And, and it's, it's all headline based. So anyway, I just yeah. wanted to, to kind of flag that. Do you know the other thing that's, I guess, get, Touching on the point we we mentioned earlier, and this is more longer term, but again, in regard to the future already being here, just not being evenly distributed, it is, I don't, there's plenty of very smart, well-regarded people that are talking about, I mean, this is why we've seen such the big pump in in NVIDIA and a lot of tech stocks is this AI revolution and maybe a robotics revolution not too far behind that. You're going to find structural changes in the economy where Mm. it's just, harder to get a job yeah. because yeah. people can be so much more efficient. There will be entire industries that go the way of the horseshoe maker mm-hmm. and of the blacksmith. Uh, you know, what happens when you can think about, let's just take one example. Let's just take call centers. Mm-hmm. I've now got a, a voice activated chatbot that's just as good, yeah. right? And I've got a million of them and they cost me a fraction of what, yeah. what, I, what I currently do. That. The, the, <laughs> Let's take self-driving vehicles, which are already here. I mean, mm-hmm. this is largely a legal impediment at this at this point in time. Mm-hmm. But when you've got um, uh, the logistics transport network being far more automated, uh, you know, example after example after example, that is going to be a much in the same way that the work from home phenomena has been a shift. Mm-hmm. And they're not, you know, shifts have good consequences and bad yeah. consequences. Yeah. Good for yeah. some people, worse for others. But but it's change, and it's it's something that it's easy to get very starry-eyed with some of this tech. And and I think what we all tend to do, the other saying is that we we overestimated in the short term and we yes. underestimated in the long term. It's so true. Which is so true. So true. You go back to any sort of, you know, with the mobile phone, the internet, whatever, it's just sort of like there are the the starry-eyed optimists, like this is going to change the world. And three years later, it's like, not really. Mm. Uh, and then 10 years, far more than you would ever imagine. And, and, you know, this is likely to happen, I think, in our lifetime. So I don't know what my point is out of all of that, but it's sort of, <laughs> Change is coming, <laughs> yeah. and and change represents risk. But but I guess the so to be optimistic is change does represent opportunity as well. No, that's that's my take, mate. If you, I, I'm I'm a little more optimistic than you are as, as a general rule, but also in this in this case as well. You look at you know I think it was the turn of the twentieth century, something like eighty percent of people worked in agriculture. Yep. Now it's three or six or something ridiculous. Yep. And we've still only got 4% unemployment and we're stupidly richer than we were. And yes, there are downsides and I kind of feel like I need to always clarify and specify that. But, you know, the the 
we, we find ways to spend our money and people find jobs in those areas and so on and so forth. Um, mm. And we're better off for it. I, I the, the pace of change may be more dislocating than in the past. And that has, frankly, mm. geopolitical issues as well as local political issues and everything else. But, uh, you know, maybe at some point we're only working four hours a week uh, mm. or, or maybe 90% of us haven't got a job. But I don't know. I, I you know, it, I think there's... I, I am far less concerned. Think about the introduction of the spreadsheet in 1980, right? All these accounts mm. clerks were suddenly made unemployable. And there's still 4% unemployment. You know, we, we, we find ways of... And this is, by the way, this is, the, this is why standard of livings have gone up so much. Because you don't have to have 80% of people laboring away for minimum wage on a farm. You've now got people working as physiotherapists and uh, nurses and, you know, hairdressers and whatever, pick your, pick your you know, creatives doing mm. movies and films and making TV shows and whatever, you know, whatever else. The, the, the reality is those things tend to create their own jobs because our demands increase, our, our wealth increases, and smart people who with a profit motive say, I think I can. I think I can solve for that. I think I can give mm-hmm. them something they're going to want to spend their money on, yep. and that's that's kind of how this stuff rolls out. That's that's the interplay of needs and wants. The interplay of rising standard of living and increased wealth. Uh, if you've got a couple extra dollars in your pocket, you might want to spend it on a new thing someone's got for you. You mentioned those glass things in our pockets. A new bloody iPhone. It's like it's fifteen hundred bucks or something, which is mm. on one level crazy. When I bought my first Nokia one two one for a hundred bucks, you know, in nineteen ninety whatever it was. Um, but on the on the other hand, the amount of time and effort and energy we spend staring at that piece of glass, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you know, it, Warren Buffett calls it the most valuable real estate in the world because it literally is the things you can put on that screen. The mm-hmm. amount of time, effort, money we spend on that is is incredible. Yep, I, I guess I, one thing that I'm mindful of with all of that, you, we can't all be YouTube influencers, right? Mm-hmm. Like so, so when the industrial revolution happened, we were humanity, a very big chunk of humanity. Um, found refuge in the higher level occupation, the more, as you say, the more creative, the more thought-based kind of activities, the less, less manual labor things because we had all these engines that could do things for us and just give us the strength of a thousand horses. So that was all really cool. What might be a little bit different this time around is that there's nowhere to, there's nowhere, there's no safe haven potentially for, for a lot of humans. It's not that there won't ever be a requirement for, for someone at the top, but someone at the top can command far more resources and, mm. and productivity than they ever could before. Yes, yes. And while there will be new jobs that we can't even imagine, yes. not everyone can be Joe Rogan. So podcasting wasn't a thing that long ago, mm. right? You know, and but it's it's a it's it's a just a different dynamic. And sort of you think, okay, well when that when where do we go to next? You know, there was that um I think one one of the parts of the argument uh, when it's it's come up for for a long time has always been well we'll all be artists you know but we've already seen that like AI can write better music and do really cool things with drawings like it's it's just it's I don't know if if we can I don't know I think I think it's going to be a pretty radical transformation it's going to play out over decades so it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow but it's it's going to there's mm. there is always upheaval um, and pain and, and disjointedness when these Correct. big paradigm shifts happen. So particularly if they happen quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And and they have the potential to happen extremely quickly. I opened up my Gmail this morning and already there's like Gemini stuff uh being advertised. Yeah, it's cool, isn't it? You yeah. know, and it's sort of like we were only talking about, you know, the first chat GPT on this potty bit over a year ago. Right, like, right, 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 right. One year. Yeah, it's one year. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like and then, what it's five years later mm-hmm. look like. I can't even wrap my head around it. So mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think one 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 sort of high level investment takeaway I have from all of that 
is that barring some radical change to society, maybe we all go to a UBI or some, I don't know, we're all led by a, 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 a sentient AI that just sort of <laughs> is, a, is a beneficial a, a dictator or, or whatever, is uh, we may find that what we get is a lot more spare time and that yeah. the notion of work is is different, yeah. I suppose, in, in that, you know, we we have more resources, we have more that we're able to consume, but something a forty hour a forty hour working week going nine to five might be an antiquated kind of notion. I don't know. It's 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 gonna it, it's going to be wild. But I want to I want to as an sorry to finish my thought. I want to be someone who is an owner of capital, because an owner of capital is far more likely to benefit. If if I only if my only value to society is what I can do through my work, whether that be manual or thought, and that's at risk of disruption, and that goes, what am I left with? If I am left with, if I have spent some time allocating capital to the kinds of entities that are likely to benefit from this, yeah. I might suffer personally in my direct income generating capacity, but my, I will still have a, a, a pile of capital that's working very effectively for me. Mm. And that's always been, that's always been, in fact, when you look at the, the, the richest people and the top strata of society, if you want to call it that, they are the owners of capital. And, and the, the capital base and the nature of capital has changed over the, the gener generations. But I, I'm sure in 30 years' time, the richest, most successful people will be those that are have capital ownership in, mm. in these big value-creating entities, whatever, whatever shape they may take. I rambled through that. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense, mate. Yeah, and it, is, it has some social implications, by the way, but on a selfish level, uh, you want to own some of this stuff because that, that's where, you know, to protect yeah. yourself from dislocation – of labor owning capital is a wonderful place to be and by the way for those who are raging at the podcast machine right now because of that i feel your pain uh and there are different definitely policy changes you mentioned ubi already ran which is a whole different thing we may not get into but um universal basic income by the way for those who are wondering um mm. but uh yeah it, it, the, uh, very selfishly if you if you don't believe don't trust or aren't sure government are going to come to the rescue owning capital is a, is a nice bulwark against it no guarantees by the way because i guess capital could be disrupted as well or or, or the the gains may flow to a very specific subset of capital but uh, yeah. it is you're much better having having that capital having that ownership of of those productive assets rather than, than working for a quid if only because it gives you that uh, opportunity to have a, a second bite of that cherry you're work, working for a quid and owning capital means you've got two two goes at this one um, if one is disrupted you've got the other if you if you only have one of those then you're, you're on the hook if, if things go badly let, let me tee you up for a nice segue here. A, a good uh, you know, example uh, would be someone who has lost their job, but five years ago made a decent investment into NVIDIA, right? So you've had this massive sort of uh, value accumulation that you've, you've, shared, you've shared in. Uh, so even though you're sort of worse off in one area, you're probably much better off on that because of the exposure that you granted yourself. And that is the, that is the really cool thing mm -hmm. about equity markets, you know, all- Pretty much all of the big ones are all, all listed, and, and even as an Australian, if they're overseas, you can you can take a part of these kinds of things, and um, yeah, I, it might be something to think about. Yeah, for sure, mate. Um, let's uh, we'll, we'll go. the, the let's segue. Go. The segue being there was we're going to talk about the Magnificent Seven. Right, that's one thing. Right. I did have something else, but I'm going to I'm going to put that aside and let's talk about the Magnificent Seven. Um, I, <laughs> I, I'm I we should talk about it because they've, they've been really really important and massive. Um, I pause only because we've had the Fang stocks and we've had 
you know, the, the, the media and the finance industry love to be able to put some labels on these things because it makes it relatable and investable and there's already a magnificent seven ETFs and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, yeah. I, I just... You can go back to the nifty 50, right? right? Exactly. If you go back a few decades, yeah. So I'm going to I'm gonna just ask people to... I'll explain what it is in a second, but just, just be mindful that when we talk about this, we're talking about it because it's a thing. Uh, don't, don't get swept up in it necessarily. So the magnificent seven are seven companies, seven uh, American companies that have been just going through the roof uh, share price-wise over the past, I'm going to say a few years. Um, basically, these are the big tech giants of today that are just, we've talked about kind of the why almost without talking about the companies themselves. Uh, so uh, let me just go through the list for th- uh, I own some of these. Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, which is the company that owns Google, NVIDIA, the chip maker, Meta, was the old business called Facebook once upon a time, Microsoft and Tesla. Now, these are the magnif- called the Magnificent Seven. Uh, the, the, the reason they've kind of ro- risen to prominence is the market, sh- not market, sh- market capitalization, the value gains of these businesses are extraordinary. Now, uh, to give you a, a concept of how big these guys are, um, there's a Deutsche Bank report that was out in earlier this month, February 19th. So there you go, about a week ago. Uh, quote, the magnificence, oh, up going quote, the magnificent sevens combined market cap alone would make it the second largest stock exchange in the world. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. They are just phenomenal. Um, the the gains they've made over the past 12 months in particular has been extraordinary uh it is it is just and and it's worth talking about for a couple of reasons one is we've just and we've kind of already done it mate you you kind of touched on the these are all tech companies literally all them in tesla arguably a car company and again i've talked about tech before and tech is a stupid term except that when you think about the the way these guys are creating value it is utilizing that technology in new and different ways. I've said before, I, I've, I've talked about the NASDAQ as an index being the companies that are inventing the future. We've talked about why and how. Again, think about what these companies are doing. It is, it is just remarkable. As a result, by the way, and we've talked about this in an Australian context, Deutsche also says, quote, uh, sorry, I shouldn't quote yet. The stock, US stock market is, quote, rivaling 2000 and 1929 in terms of being its most concentrated in history. Now, we're used to having half our market here made up of banks and miners. The US was much, much, much more broad only five years ago. Uh, now, very, very concentrated because of the growth of these guys. Uh, Alpha, Apple and Microsoft, close enough to $3 trillion US dollars of market capitalization each. It wasn't that long ago we were crossing a trillion dollars. Will Apple ever get to a trillion dollars with the headlines? Now mm-hmm. it's at three trillion dollars. Um, uh, Meta's not far away. Alphabet's not far away. These are these are just huge, huge, huge businesses. Uh, and I will say, mate, I am not going to suggest there's no froth in the share prices. What I will say, I own some of these. I own of this lot, Amazon and Alphabet. Um, what I will say is, if you look at the, the price earnings ratios, they are absolutely high, absolutely elevated. But they're not stupidly stratospheric. No, they're um, really not. No. You know, there might be 30 odd times, but these businesses have grown like the clappers. Yeah, Apple's and, 28. And, I'm just looking now. Right. And so even Tesla's of, 45. They, these are not these are not stupid nosebleed, can't possibly do it. So when they talk about 1929 and 2000, people think, okay, Great Depression, you know, dot com crash, et cetera, et cetera. 
And again, these could these businesses could halve, and the, and the PEs wouldn't be cheap traditionally, right? A PE of thirty for I think I think Apple might be under thirty. I think Meta's at about thirty. If it was to halve to fifteen, that'd be market average. And yes, it would hurt shareholders. You know, a halving in a share price is never good. Um, yes, it would hurt the index, by the way, because how big these guys are. But if you kind of just consider that, you know, that's about well, as far as they can go. In two thousand, the Nasdaq fell eighty-five percent because there were stupid valuations for companies. These might be too high, they might be a bit frothy, they might be a bit over the top, or they might not be, by the way. But there's not, it's not like there is no basis for the valuations of some of these companies. Can I, can I just put that in context? I, Please. Um, clarify something here. You, you're right to stress that these are high multiples. When you look at the long, long-term average of the markets, what did you say, 15, 16, something like yep. that. Yep. So when you see Tesla at 44, and, and also given the size of it, you know, if... if the Motley Fool can grow could 10x itself and still not be on the on on the Nasdaq, right? Um, or you know, Strawman could 100x itself and still not even be on the Newcastle Exchange, right? So it's sort of it, it, there is a lot more room to grow when you're small. When you're that big, yeah, there's still growth potential. I don't don't please don't at me all the Tesla bulls and stuff, but it is it is just much harder to grow. But I think the reason we sort of say it's not that bad is that a despite their size, there is still pretty decent growth potential. But B, look at it comparatively. Let's go to the ASX. And and mm. I think if 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 we didn't have our local context, maybe we would be looking at these numbers <laughs> yeah, going, that's right. geez, that's a bit high. That's so when so you were true. talking that, I just did a quick quick search. Zero, mm -hmm. uh, the company zero, the accounting software, the PE is 168. Oof. Prometicus, we've talked about a lot, drink. <laughs> The, 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 the <laughs> PE there is, is 130 or something. Right, you know? right, right. Altium, uh, the, the chip designing software company, got taken over recently. Well, it's in, currently going through a takeover offer, a very generous takeover bid from a Japanese firm. PE 74. Um, uh, WiseTech, another. You know, what, what we, they, had, they had the Magnificent Seven. We had the. What was Wax. our acronym? Wax. Wax. So this is the W in, in Wax. WiseTech, Altium, Afterpay, Happen, <laughs> and Zero. Well, well, Appen's interesting. Uh -huh. isn't it? Um, have to pay too, uh, by the way. Yeah, go yeah, and and uh, so, but with WiseTech, it's on a PE of one hundred and twenty-two. I can I just say for the record, I think every every company I just listed there, I really like. I really like them. I don't own any of them, mm -hmm. and that's why I don't own any of yeah. them. Yeah. Um, but before you, you know, that, if you think that makes me smart, it, it probably doesn't because I, I could have sort of made a similar argument when they were all at a PE of eighty, <laughs> and it's gone up another fifty percent. Exactly. But it does, it does, uh, and uh, like each company has its unique circumstance and growth expectations and all yep. the rest of it. But from, from as an Australian perspective, sort of seeing some headlines about the, the Magnificent Seven and the multiples they're trading on, you go, oh, geez, mm. I, just, I wonder what they are. And you think, oh, that's, that's not that bad <laughs> compared to what I'm having to deal with here on, on the ASX. So we, we, whatever remarks you want to make about the valuation of the Magnificent Seven, if you want to take a, a local look at things, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I'm just finding it harder and harder to sort of for anyone to rationalise these valuations. It's not that they can't be proven reasonable in the fullness of time, hmm. but as I often say, the asymmetry and the returns there is sort of really unfortunate. It's either they sh they shoot the lights out and you'll beat the market, maybe five 
percent a year or something. <laughs> um, they do what everyone expects, which is very you know what everyone expects, and you maybe get sort of the market average return by definition, mm. or they fall a little bit short and you lose thirty percent. It's just it's just the math's not attractive on it. But I've been I've been really wrong on a lot of those stocks so far. <laughs> so take it with a grain of salt. And it's worth saying, you know, a business like Amazon. I've I've owned shares on Amazon for quite a while. They had P's above hundred at some point previously yeah. too and investors were right about those so it's not saying well, you can't be right about these other companies it's also maybe true that these guys have lower PEs now because they're becoming more mature as businesses and so there is only so much more growth left yeah. uh, and maybe you know maybe it is better to buy the, the high PE stocks when they're young and small and can still grow by you know three, four, five, ten times mm. uh, but uh, given the growth of these businesses the profit growth of these companies revenue growth is still extraordinary for businesses of this size um, they are reinventing the future or inventing the future and that's you know almost your point before about the sheer pace of technological innovation um, no surprise that all, almost all these businesses are using AI in some form or or are, or are benefiting from AI in some yep. form again not in a, not in a frothy way like investors love these things so the share price are high I mean, they're doing things, and that's actually adding to sales and profitability. <laughs> like they're they're genuinely growing, doing, and using these things. Um, Nvidia is the one I'm least comfortable with, honestly, mate. And this is uh, maybe maybe this is gonna you know someone will, someone will record this and play it back to me in a couple of years' time. Uh, they are they are the making the chips that are powering the AI revolution. They have something like ninety plus percent of the market share of chips used in that purpose. Um, that's exactly why sales and profit are through the roof, and they are just they're growing like the absolute clappers. Now, whether they can continue to do that if and when other players come to market or other other things happen, that's an open question. I have no I have no answer to that at all, no view. Uh, but it's worth kind of saying that as much as they're benefiting from what's going on now. Of the seven, they're probably the one I think that are least obviously uh, have a have a moat that's that's protectable if things continue to innovate and change. So that, that's just my personal mm, view. Again, like you, I've been massively wrong on this because obviously the share price has gone through the roof and I haven't haven't owned the shares. Um, but uh, you know, will it be their chips that are used in the future? I don't know. Will the growth be the same in the future? I don't know. Um, and I don't really think it's possible to know. You might say, "Well, they're there now; they might keep winning." And that's not a bad thesis, by the way. Uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't. Uh, you know, I could look at Microsoft and say, "Well, we know what they do. We know what consumers and businesses think of them. We know they're, you know, are they? No, no one's protected from competition, but there's seemingly more defensible parts of their business. Um, Nvidia is the only game in town right now. At some point, when you're a monopoly provider, that's almost the, the biggest risk, right? Because you only need someone to come in and start doing it, and all of a sudden, your business comes under some decent threat. Not unlike Intel, by the way, which was the only name in town in chips for a while until AMD turned up. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I don't make no predictions, but they're probably the one I'm least comfortable with. There was a wonderful animation I saw on, I believe it was Twitter, going back 2014, comparing Nvidia and Intel. And oh, they right. sort of both, you know, uh, Intel's at 140, million, 140 billion, sorry, market cap in 2014. <laughs> Nvidia's at, at 10. And, right. you know, they're just, it's an animated chart. And obviously yeah, one just shoots up beyond, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. just insane. Uh, and so now you've got Nvidia at like 500. That can't be right. 500 billion? No, nah, well, more than that now. Oh, wow. So this, oh, sorry, this chart only goes, oh my gosh, this only goes through to 2021. Um, so- <laughs> 1.97 trillion dollars. That's 4X since that chart. So, well, the reason I mentioned that is because it shows you, back in 2014, you could have made an argument that Intel was the dominant player. Correct. And if there Correct. was some kind of chip boom, that they would be the, the major beneficiary Correct. of that. Yeah. By the way, you haven't done terribly in Intel, but you yeah. haven't done what you've done in NVIDIA. And so it's, I think- if you're going to invest in these companies, actually, th there's there's people I know who 
who really have a strong conviction on this because they've gotten way into the weeds. It, yeah. you, you can't invest on this because you think, I think AI is big and NVIDIA makes chips, so I'm buying NVIDIA. Like, that's, <laughs> that is a recipe for disaster. That's my concern, yes. Yeah, and that's what a lot of people do. So it needs to be that kind of, no, I understand the industry. I've done a lot of work on this. Here's their edge over competitors. Here's why it'll mm -hmm. be maintained. Here's the market opportunity. This is what they'll capture. These are the economics they'll have. It sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. But that's kind of where you sort of need to, to go with that. One other quick point I want to make on, on that chart, which is it, it gets me every single time because people do these things all the time, is that on something that is just an absolute to the moon rocket, the, the number of drawdowns along the way are gut-wrenching. <laughs> yeah, gut-wrenching. So in, in yeah. NVIDIA went from 200 billion to 100 billion uh, over 2019. And then it had these other, you know, just massive, massive drawdowns. And it's What's why- it Quickly, yep. So in, in 2021, so November 2021, $329 a share. Uh, by October, September 2022, 121 It fell by two-thirds wow. over that period of time, every year. Yep. The, so the, the reason I, I bring this up is that we all we all secretly want the 10-bagger, the 100-bagger, oh, yeah. right? Like that's what we want. It's <laughs> yeah, nice I'm to plot along and yeah. get 10% yep. per year. But, you know, you know, by the way, you only need one of those stocks to really Correct. make the difference. No one gets it though. Well, very, very few people do because the, the, the psychological toll of riding through that and that's why I always say some, it's very easy to look back in hindsight and say, oh, you got lucky. Yeah, you bought Amazon mm -hmm. in 2001. And I, I really bristle at those comments because I think, no, I take my hat off to you. I applaud mm -hmm. you. That, that took such incredible conviction and strength of fortitude to, to be able to cling on through all of that, that yes. you deserve every single cent that you made. Yep. Um, and it is not, it, for anyone to sort of point to that and go, look how easy that was. You bought something 10 years ago and you did nothing. Mm -hmm. It's like, you have no idea, no idea of the difficulty in that. And people that are able to do that are just deserve all the credit and reward that come to them. But if you want to be one of those people, it's going to happen, right? It's going to, it, it, you, you have to, you have to be the person who can sit there through. As in the last, you know, eight months, you've just lost two thirds of your money, you know, on, <laughs> exactly. on paper, and then and then buy more, right? Yeah. And, and I'm not saying you you buy whenever something drops two thirds, but if again, full circle, if you've done the work and you understand this, then I'm 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 all for you you backing it. Otherwise, be very 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 careful on just getting onto these hype trains. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Because the, the the other reason to that is is not that not only that you're buying something without any sort of objective view or at least trying to be objective view on value is that when, not if, when the drawdowns happen, your whole investment thesis was couched in number go up and number now <laughs> not right. go up. And so you, you panic and yes, you sell. Correct, correct. If you want to be a holder through that, you conviction and through mm -hmm. conviction comes through understanding, understanding comes through research. It's just I'm sorry, there's no shortcut to it. And it's why there's only one Warren Buffett and you know, a handful of famous investors that we sort of like to talk about because they are so exceptionally rare. But take, take the lesson is, I guess, my, my point. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, speaking of Buffett, let's move on to him because um, he, he released his shareholder letter last weekend. Uh, and Buffett writes, you know, it doesn't speak that frequently to the media, um, off and on, uh, doesn't speak to analysts at all, uh, but puts his, puts his thoughts in, in writing once a year when he writes to the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. I am one, as, as our listeners well know. Um, and it's one, of those, it's one of those things that I think is worth 
just taking a step back from it. It's not as exciting as NVIDIA. It's not going to change the world like AI. Um, not even Bitcoin, believe it or not, Ram. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's. But I think it's worth. I think it's worth um, thinking about. He he's written a whole lot of cool stuff this month, uh, this year. Um, BerkshireHathaway.com is the website. Do yourself a favor, read the letter. It's short. I mean, the whole thing is, he puts like the company analysis and stuff. But his commentary letter is probably four, I don't know, eight pages, something like that. I don't know what it is. It's really really short. Very mm. very worth reading and worth mm. worth thinking about. Um, I'm going to share some, some quotes. I wrote an article about it earlier this week. So I'm just going to share some of the quotes and, and maybe share my thoughts and get your thoughts on the same thing. And then you can add anything you want um, to, to that. But uh, he, the, unusually that this year, and not unusually or not, not surprisingly, but unusually, he spends the first page talking about his longtime business partner, Charlie Munger, who died last year. We did, a, we did an episode, a Charlie Munger episode uh, late last year. So hopefully you got a chance to, to listen to that one. But uh, he, he, he and, and, you know, Buffett and Humung are both very, very humble guys, always gave each other massive amounts of credit. So no surprise that Buffett does the same here. But a couple of, a couple of uh, just thoughts about Charlie or Charlie's uh, value and what he said to him. Warren quotes him as saying, Warren, now that you control Berkshire, add to it wonderful businesses purchased at fair prices and give up buying fair businesses at wonderful prices. In other words, abandon everything you learned from your hero, Ben Graham. It works, but only when practiced at small scale, end quote. Um, I thought that's, again, hopefully that, that concept of that quote, you know, buy wonderful business at fair price, not fair business at wonderful prices. Uh, that kind of echoes, it should be new to our listeners, it also echoes exactly what you said before, mate, about if you're going to compound your money in a single investment, it needs to have a long-term trajectory because if, you, if you're buying it because you want to turn 80 cents into a dollar, well, I guess with a dollar, then what do you do? You've got mm-hmm. to sell it and find another 80 cent dollar, right? And, maybe and then you, you then you got to pull the rabbit out of the hat right. all over again. Now, yep. as, as Munger said to Buffett, according to Buffett, it, it happens at small scale. I guess you can probably do that regularly enough if you try. In Ben Graham's day, who was Warren Buffett's mentor, for those who don't know, in the 30s and 40s, it was super easy because there, was just, there wasn't the computing power. There weren't as many investors. There were more mispriced opportunities. You made a lot of money doing exactly this. Uh, these days, no, both at large scale, but frankly, in the, in the days of you know, uh, universal information and, and computers, that stuff doesn't exist anymore. Buying mm. wonderful business at fair prices because they can continue to be wonderful businesses for a very, very long time is, is well worth doing. Yeah, yep. Um, I, Buffett said before on that, he's talked a bit about that before. He, he's brazenly, perhaps is the right word, sort of said that if he was, his, his biggest handicap today is the sheer size of the money that he is holding. Um, and I think that's too much thunder. I'm getting into that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I guess I, I speak selfishly, um, here, I guess, talking about my own sort of investment journey, you sort of, you, I think there's no one right way to skin a cat, but you've got to find something that resonates for you and something that you, you can sort of find a passion in. And I've, I've gone through that journey where I used to be all about very high quality, companies at fair prices. And I've sort of shifted more to the early Buffett kind of stuff. I don't know if it's going to end up being the right move or not, but I I love that idea that they're still acknowledging that when it's worth saying, because not everyone listening, in fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say no one listening is a multi-billionaire who's got, (laughs) you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. By the way, but thanks, thanks guys for for tuning in. Well, you know, it sucks to be the smallest fish in the pond in a lot of ways, but I'm flipping it around to sort of say, if that's you, you get to, you get to play in an area of the market that the, the bigger people can't, 
And that not even if they wanted to, they can't do it because of the capital that they've got. And that's that's something that I I find a great solace in in that you you have far less competition, so much less of the quote unquote smart money uh, that you're you're competing against. And it, it's a point worth making. I, I would sort yep. of say not not to say push people in any one direction or that, but yep. it is. I think those inefficiencies in the market are getting less and less over time, but they remain much more prevalent at the edges than they do at, at the top end. Yep, I think that's a really good point. Uh, he goes on, mate, to talk about, uh, and, and this again, just a, a bit of a Charlie Munger wrap. Uh, he says, quote, in the physical world, great buildings are linked to their architect, while those who had poured the concrete or installed the windows are soon forgotten. Berkshire has become a great company. Though I have long been in charge of the construction crew, Charlie should forever be credited with being the architect. End quote. Um, I, I, you know what, mate? My, my, my strongest thought about that is actually just the humility of Warren Buffett. Like you're mm. Warren freaking Buffett, right? And mm-hmm. yes, maybe he doesn't lose much by giving someone else some credit because he's still Warren Buffett and he's still going to have that halo. But when you kind of say everything I've done over the last 65 years, you can kind of, you know, it, it's actually Charlie, not me. Um, that's, that's no, you know, I, I don't know too many other people who would willingly not only defer some of the credit, but effectively defer all the credit to the design of what has been the greatest investment conglomerate of, I'm going to say all time, certainly of, of modern times, um, to somebody else say, yeah, look, I, I, I kind of, I kind of, you know, I, I manned the till, someone else put the strategy in place. Mm. Um, I think that sort of humility, frankly, is is missing from from public life, and we can do we can do with a whole lot more of it. Um, I don't have an investment takeaway necessarily, other than stay humble is is a pretty good way to start investing and and keep going on the process. Uh, humility is everything, you know, and he's, he's just such a gentleman, Buffett. But but it, it, I I think it's just such honestly, I don't think I know a good investor who isn't really humble. And not not because it's a necessary um, not because I just like I think we 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 like people who are more um, uh, humble than those that are very braggy and and arrogant and the rest of it. But mm. my point being is that arrogance and hubris leads to disaster in yes, investing. It does. It does. Yeah, exactly. You know, it just does. When and you start you, reading your own press, you're in trouble. Oh, uh, you really do. And like the, the you know it's. So how many times have we seen the pride before fall moment? The fund manager, fund manager that's flying high, the AFR is all over them. Funds are flowing into their to their vehicle. They can't lose, and then boom, down eighty percent and never heard of again. It's the idea of there are old generals, there are bold generals, but there are no old and bold generals. And um, yeah, it, it, you. So yes, I agree with you. It's just it's it's always nice to see Buffett. He's always been very humble um, and very very quick to sort of share praise and the rest of it. But I would just sort of say again for you personally, if you're that kind of person that can't listen with an open mind and good yep. faith to other arguments, and especially the arguments that are against your position, yes. you're just not going to make it as an investor. Yep. I don't think. I'm not saying you have to agree with every every person who argues with you, but you need to take them seriously. Mm. And that, and speaking of Munger, he. Yeah, how many times has he made that point? You're rereading his book again at the moment, right? Yes, it's yes. Just sort of like you need to constantly challenge your assumptions. Mm-hmm. You need to mm-hmm. constantly make the assumption that I might be wrong here. Yes. And if I am wrong, where am I wrong? Um, you know, if, if you don't ever consider that as a possibility, you are going to walk into so many traps and 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 in a way that probably makes it unrecoverable. So yeah. Don't be arrogant, I guess. The other thing I'd add to that, mate, just to, to really flesh out your point, not only do you have to be humble enough to realize to, to really search hard for where you might be wrong, you've got to be humble enough to realize you're going to be wrong anyway. Yeah. And so while you can try and minimize the errors, 
you will still make the errors. Yep. And so investing accordingly, diversifying, uh, dollar cost averaging, the things you can actually do to avoid that reality of, I've, I've, been, as, I've been as careful as I possibly could be. Yep. Buffett's bought businesses that have gone broke. Yep. Subsequently. That, yeah. you know, they, they, this is On plenty, of, plenty of occasions, yeah. Right? If, if you think you can avoid that, <laughs> then good luck to you. So, you know, the, the idea, of, idea of, you know, the humility of making sure you understand the downsides of your own ideas, but also even when you've done, even when you've done as much work as you still can, you're still going to be wrong sometimes. Mm. And so investing accordingly, is just, it's just necessary. And I think when you start to believe that you have all the answers, you stop leaving room for A, your own errors, as you said, mate, and trying to, mm. uh, trying to find them, identify them, but also simply saying, well, I think I'm right about this but there's a decent chance I'm going to be wrong, so I'm not going to put all my eggs in this basket, or mm. I'm not going to take this approach, or I'm not going to assume I'm right. Um, once you, if you set your course on, this is the only way this can, and we've seen this so many times, and again, I, 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 it's an old hackney one, I apologize to Steve Keen yet again for mentioning this one, but Keen's gone, I've done the maths, the housing market can't but crash, uh, so I'm going to sell everything, or sell his, which he did, and then his response afterwards was, well, I would have been right if government hadn't changed. Now, what he didn't allow for was the fact that government might change. It wasn't that his, it wasn't his reasoning was wrong or his analysis was wrong or in a, in a all things being equal economist world, he wasn't wrong. And again, it's not, not the fact that prices went down or up and I, I'm not, I take no joy in, in giving him a hard time. I've, I've spoken to him quite a lot. He's, he's quite a decent guy. Um, I don't always agree with him, but you know, it, it, the, the, the error was not allowing for the fact that things may not turn out the way he expected them to because he had such conviction that if the analysis he'd done was right, then therefore that must happen he just didn't allow for those alternatives and, and put himself in a position where, you know, he, he and again, he's perfectly fine. But, um, but that idea of drawing a conclusion, if you, if you have a view of geopolitics or technology or something and you are so convinced that you throw all your eggs in that basket, be very, very, very careful because if this doesn't work out that way, you're in, you're in a world of hurt. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Mate, um, we'll, we'll move quickly through this. We have got a couple of things to get to. Uh, quote, our goal at Berkshire is simple. We want to own either a, all or a portion of businesses that enjoy good economics that are fundamental and enduring. Within capitalism, some businesses will flourish for a very long time while others will prove to be sinkholes. Then he goes on to say, quote, it's harder than you would think to predict which will be the winners and losers. And those who tell you they know the answer are usually either self-delusional or snake oil salesmen, <laughs> end quote. Mm. Uh, which actually probably just reinforces the thing we've just said before. I don't think I've got much more to add on that other than Buffett does it with his usual flair, a very, very simple way to way to do it. Yep. And and uh, he's previously defined the best business as one that generates large amounts of free cash flow that can be reinvested at high rates of return, yep. which is a bit of a word salad and to throw it at you very quickly like that, it, it takes a little <laughs> bit to absorb that. But it's just basically a, a company that can sustain its operations without having to continually reinvest into just the existing operations. Yep. So it throws up all this spare money, what we call free cash flow. And then actually I can not pay it out as a dividend, I can keep it. And I've got this little opportunity here where I can invest that and get 20, 30% rates of return. You do that all day long and do that for decades, you end up being like Warren Buffett. So yeah, he's, 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 got, a, he's got a good formula. Very easily outlined, very difficult to prosecute, but very, very elegant and very correct too. Nice. Um, this is interesting too, mate, thinking about the way people invest. Quote, though the stock market is massively larger than it was in our early years, today's active participants are neither more emotionally stable nor better taught than when I was in school. For whatever reasons, markets now exhibit far more casino-like behavior than they did when I was young. 
The casino now resides in many homes and daily tempts the occupants. Mm. Uh, this should be tattooed on on people's faces or put at the bottom of there. You know, if, if you're a decent stockbroker, you, you, this would be a, this would be your login screen. Mm. Now they're not because they make money doing it, right? Well, but that's that idea of somehow that you know we're talking about technology and the, the advances in in technology. I've said many many times our biggest challenge is our our brains haven't evolved as quickly as our society has, uh, whether that's the economy more broadly or technology in particular. Uh, and and we are we are bringing a knife to a gunfight of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. the the fact that the fact that marketers and business people looking to make a buck from us, not for us, can create these casinos in our pockets. Uh, you know they're not they're not they're not poker machines. So somehow they seem more respectable and more reasonable. And it's investing. It's not speculating. It's not gambling. I'm buying and selling shares. Uh, it, it, maybe it's better to say the uh, it, it is the it is the function, not the form, mm-hmm. uh, that defines casino like behaviour. Yeah, uh, I'll point to the GameStop movie again, Dumb Money. It just, just demonstrates that right. so well, right? Um, yeah, it, it's and it's a good it's a it's a good thing. I mean, just to be selfish again for a moment, you know, in 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 the sense that it means that there can be really big perturbations from from a reasonable notion of fair value because yeah. of over exuberance and then over anxiety, if you want to call it that. So yeah, yeah, long long may it last. Nice. Last one, mate. Um, oh, it's two here. I'll do two. Okay. Quote, we cherish their presence. This is what Shao is talking about. We cherish their presence and believe they are entitled to hear every year both the good and the bad news delivered directly from their CEO and not from an investor relations officer or communications consultant forever serving up optimism and syrupy mush. End quote. Strong agree. That's cool, isn't it? No one's going to do it. No, no one's going to do it. But, but also, it would be the exception to the rule, but it is, yeah. Yeah. Remember, as an investor, that's what you're getting. You're getting yeah. optimism and syrupy mush from, uh, from, from almost every company you see report and talk about their business. So uh, discount it accordingly. Last yeah. one, uh, quote, the lesson from Coke and Amex, question mark, when you find a truly wonderful business, stick with it. Patience pays. And one wonderful business can offset the many mediocre decisions that are inevitable. Mm. Which again is pretty much exactly what you said before. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I we, you and I have both been in this industry for a while, and um, I think when we've ever had to deal with a, a client who is unhappy, mm. and then you're dealing with money, it's going to be going to, no matter how good you are. Yeah. It it usually people. I think it's, and this is true in life in general, I think it's usually a mismatch in expectations versus the reality of things. So everyone says, Mm. I like this share market thing. I feel as though the (laughs) long-term average return of 10% is better than what I'm getting elsewhere. It's got a lot of advantages. It's super easy to do, low cost, fast settlement, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I'm down for that. Not recognizing the reality is that, well, within that, you know, probably four to seven of your investments are not out of 10 investments are not going to work out. It's going to be a minority that do all the heavy lifting and it's never going to be 10% a year. It's going to be up 30% and then down 40%, but it's going to average that 10%. Mm. And I think that's worth, it's just worth sort of stressing here that, as you said before, even someone like Buffett is going to make all kinds of mistakes, but just to remember that, Hey, this is normal. This is, this is don't get upset. And and the worst (laughs) thing you can do, and it, it's hard to sort of give this advice to a client because you you are 
inherently self-interested in the in the sense that it's like, well, I want I don't want the client to go, so I'm gonna, <laughs> you know, it feels as though you're saying what you have to say to sort of keep them. But that's right. But I think it's the truth. You know, it's sort of like it. It's going back to that earlier point of sort of it being much more of a casino. The 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 incentives at play are very interesting here, and we've talked about this before. You and I set up an advisory service. And we go, mm. we're not going to be different from everyone else. And our marketing is going to say, hey, come invest in the stock market. Super scary, hyper volatile. You'll watch your net wealth jump around by huge orders of magnitude from time to time. A lot of the investments will go bad, but we think over the long, long term, you'll do very, very well. Here you go, $200 a year membership. No one's signing, not a single person on God's green earth is signing up. The person who says, hey, look at this one. This one's going to the moon. You need to get on this now. And here's some other ones that we've won. They, they, they almost, the industry selects for the bad actors because the bad actors just have such better marketing because they because they can they 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 they're more prepared to give you that rose colored sort of view of things. The 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 trouble with it is is it's this churn and burn of customers. People get wrecked. They still make their money, and it becomes this insidious, horrible kind of industry. Whereas, you know, hopefully with some of the stuff we're sort of putting out there, we can just hammer home these more difficult messages mm-hmm. and still hopefully get through to people that, but it's still worth it. It's worth it despite, despite the agony. Yeah. Love it, mate. Love it. I'm going to finish, mate, with a rant. Can I rant? I haven't ranted for a while. Please, that's not a, not, a, not a podcast if we don't rant. <laughs> Coles reported its earnings this week. Woolies last week. We talked about Woolies results last week. And I even ranted about this a little bit last week. I am so sick and tired of the absolute BS that goes around the alleged price gouging by our supermarkets. It is just absolute and complete nonsense by people who, frankly, either do know better and are cynically using it to make a political or social point, or don't know better but should, and I'm not entirely sure which one of these is wrong. I've done the numbers, Ram. Here's the thing. Let's take Woolies profit for the last six months. Mm-hmm. Add Coles profits mm-hmm. for the last six months. Net then profit? Multiplying by two to get a yearly number. Okay. Sorry, so net profit that, are we talking about? Is that what we're just making? We're, we're talking about net profit? Net profit, net profit. Okay, yep. Divide that by the number of Australians. Mm-hmm. Then divide that by the number of weeks in a year. Mm-hmm. To have Woolies and Coles within five minutes drive of 95, 98, 99 probably percent of Australians with fresh food, big range, great service, cheap prices, $2.17 per person, per week. We pay more for Netflix. Now, I don't know what they think is going to happen here. If Coles and Woolies profits halved, we'd save a buck a, year, a buck a week per person. I live in a family of three people. I would save 150 bucks on groceries, which frankly would be lovely and I would take it and that'd be fine. There is no profiteering when I've got to pay at my household 300 bucks a year over and above the cost of providing all of this great stuff, the range, the service, the price, the location, the convenience. I can pick it up from the store. I can have it delivered to my house. $2.17 a week per person in profit from Woolies and Coles. And I just, mate, for the life of me, I don't know, well, I suspect I do know why, but the absolute, I'm going to say stupidity of people who either, as I said, should know better but don't, which is indefensible, or do know better and don't care, which is indefensible, or should know better, haven't bothered to find out because just they like the idea of blaming these grocers for profiteering, is just completely mind-blowingly stupid. We have 
a dozen different problems in Australia. Big problems. We, you've talked about housing. We've talked about housing before. We've talked about resources taxation. We've talked about multinational tax avoidance. We've talked about all of that. We've not talked about a whole lot of other stuff that's a problem as well. Productivity, maybe, treasurer and lobby group and newspaper journos. It is just absolutely freaking nonsense the carry on that we hear about a profit margin that is two bucks per person per week that if it halved would be fine but hardly move the dial it is just so incredibly frustrating we've just talked about the mortgage cliff we just talked about at the beginning of the program the fact that 1.6 million million Australians are in mortgage stress what is government doing about any of that nothing but there's four or five different inquiries about grocery prices because somehow Woolies and Coles are the biggest problem we have as a country. Now, yes, we can do more than one thing at a time. Yes, we can do an inquiry into grocery prices and other stuff, but we're not doing the other stuff. And the number of tweets from the people who should know better, the number of public pronouncements from politicians and lobby groups who should know better, the number of journos who get caught up in this rubbish and think that somehow they should know better. Uh, shout out to The Guardian, by the way, a paper that I genuinely quite like, but has been running this Australia versus UK grocery margin story for God knows how long, and obviously paid by the story. Um, it's, it, mate, it, it drives me absolutely bananas that given every problem we've got, given every opportunity we've got, given the challenges, given the, the things that our governments and, and a, a serious interested media and really, really smart people working for think tanks and lobby groups could actually be doing, they're spending all this time and effort on absolute nonsense. Mm. I, 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 you know, there's, Let, oh, I, I, yeah, I don't know. You go. I'll shut up. I totally take the point. And I, I agree with you that it's, it's a storm in a teacup. It gets way more attention than it should. Um, but I'll, I'll push back a little bit. Um, and maybe I'll repeat some of the stuff I said last week, but just the, the terms gouging, the terms profiteering, mm -hmm. are they doing that? Well, I don't know what the formal definition of that is. <laughs> like, the, the, as I said, there's a semantic angle to this. They, as a free market capitalist, I guess mm. I would say that a company should make as much profit as it can make, as long as it operates within the, the rules of, of, of law, sure. uh, as we have it. Um, so... So I don't, I, I don't, I don't know where. Yeah, look, object. Let's just go with some object, objective facts. So there's always a nugget of truth to some some of these things. Gross margins increased, right? They just did. So yes, the prices that they that Coles and Woolies had to pay for their suppliers went up. They passed yep. that on, and then they added more than what they normally do. So that's fact, mm -hmm. all right? Now again, could they do that? Yes, they clearly could. Should mm -hmm. they do that? Well, shouldn't they? Depend. Well, depends on what you think the the mandate of the board and management is. Um, it, if we want to have a discussion on sort of limiting the profitability of certain industries, I think it's a very slippery slope. It's a very, yep. it's a very dangerous yep. kind of slope. Um, but I do get the argument that's like, well, you, you, you did clearly pass on more than your added cost. I know there are things below uh, the bottom line. Added, added product cost, just to be really clear, because their gross, their net margins actually fell as well. Yeah, but then then you you especially in the I didn't look at Coles, but in the case of Woolies though, that's with Big W and stuff in it. They're in mm -hmm. operate EBIT operating margins uh, increased for supermarkets. So and again, I'm not, but I'm not. I, I'm I'm sort of stating two things can be yeah. true at once. I'm stating a fact, right? Like yes, so yes, yes. this is what. I'm, so starting with the premise that yeah, it's completely overblown because the numbers that we're talking about are not going to move the dial for me at all. So I get I get that, but just to be pedantic and argue the yep. point. Well, hey, yeah. you you passed on more. All right, and in your supermarkets division, you made more money. My mm -hmm. my broader point is, well, if we don't think that's okay, what do we do about it? 
Yeah. And I think I think mandating things just very quickly sends us in a direction economically <laughs> that's very dangerous and you know you, you get to bread stupidity. lines and all kinds yep. of stupidity very very quickly in yep. in in that regard. I've long been on the record of saying, you know, competition is is the solution. Um, mm. you know, to these kinds of things. But but these companies have incredible market power. They just do. And it's, it's emotive. So I get the story. I would far prefer the Jonas focus on much more important things. There's, there's an element of truth to what they're saying. It's just, it's just overblown. I guess that's my point. Fair enough. Right, because it will. is, right? Like it is. Because like the, the margins are the margins are the margins. Yeah. And, and they went up. And, and, and they sit 50% higher than where they sit in the US and the UK. Yep. Fact. <laughs> yep. um, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Different conversation. How do you fix yep. it? Different conversation. Does it deserve all the attention? No, it doesn't. <laughs> I just, I just think that the, 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 the savings you could make by so you know Woolies, Woolies gross margin went up twenty five basis points, right? So that's that a two percent increase would be two cents in the dollar. A point two percent is two is is point two of a cent in the dollar. Mm. It, it, let's either give that back, and, and the gross margins are fine. What 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 difference? It just it just the, the dollars per person per Australian or whatever. It's just it's just such a stupid argument. Relative, as you say, the, the numbers are the numbers, but relative to every other problem we've got, the number of column inches, radio talkback time, politicians ranty time, lobby groups carry on. Let's let's say we did. Let's say we made them give it back. Okay, so so the average Australian would be a tiny 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 fraction better off. Well done, guys. Congratulations. You solved the biggest problem we've got. We're all, everything's okay now. Um, Australia's now much more prosperous, much more better off. Thank you very much for all that hard work. You can, you've done your job. You can go back right off into the sunset. Yep. It is just, you know, look at, look at the, the profits made by energy companies. Look at the issues with productivity. Look at uh, the budget situation. Look at resource taxation. Look at the lack of, a, again, there's, there's so many. And even if you disagree with all of those things, you'll have another five things you think we should do. Yep. And almost none of those things are going to be uh, sorry, it will, grocery margin is not going to be more impactful to anybody than any of those things. It yeah. is just this nonsense conversation. It's either it's either misunderstanding or misdirection. And either way, it is just it is just so ridiculously useless. Here's the other thing, by the way, mate. I've said this before. I think I said this last week too. You, you know how they're making that money by screwing the suppliers, not by screwing the customers. Mm. The, yeah. the simple. I, I've worked for food suppliers. I have worked for half a dozen of them earlier in my career. Can I tell you? It is not, you know, the consumer's not, when they did, when Coles and Bullies did the $1 milk campaign, it wasn't the consumer getting screwed. When they dropped the price of bread, it wasn't you and I paying too much. They are absolutely, so if, if the margins are too high, and this is the other problem that, that frustrates me, mate, is, you know, what is it, lies down, lies statistics. Mm. The margins are higher. Yeah, they are. Do you know why they're higher? Now, I, I can't say for sure, because there's no way to absolutely pull us apart. But the pressure they put on large and small suppliers I've, I've worked for large multinationals. The pressure they put on these large suppliers, let alone the poor small guys, is just phenomenal. I would bet a very large amount of money that if we broke up losing coals into three or four parts each, the margins would go down. And everyone would say, hey, hey, the margins go down, that's great. You know why they would go down? Because the food prices would go up and the suppliers would get paid more. And mm. frankly, they probably should be paid more because they're getting screwed. Mm. But this is the, the outcome here is not the consumer <laughs> getting taken for a ride. This yeah. is the suppliers having to put their hand in their pocket or frankly, having other hands put in their pockets to fund this stuff. Yep. I, I, don't, I don't own yeah. shares. Do I own shares any suppliers? I don't think so. 
Uh, I don't know. Anyway, it's not, it's not about not about me, not about my. I've worked for both. As I said, I've worked for Woolies, I've worked for the suppliers. I've been on both sides of this conversation. Mm. It is just like you know, the, the, using yeah, a percentage I, margin, saying therefore it must must be true that X is happening. As you say, mate, the numbers are the numbers. There's no argument about what, what the number is. Yeah. The lack of serious consideration and thought and interpretation of this in any objective way, rather than I have mm. a preconception, let me prove it to you. Yep. It's just it just the, the standard yeah. public debate on this stuff is so low. It's crazy. It, yes, you're right, and and I, I guess what I'll I will legitimise is people I think are right to be angry. I, I think take it take it to the average person in the street kind of perspective here, mm. and you can talk all you want about margins and competition and regulation and all the all I know is is that over the last few years my purchasing power has gone down a lot. Yes. I yep. go to the supermarket and petrol and things that are in my face every day. Like, there's only so much money coming in and a hell of a lot more is going out. And I'm Everything not buying more, more stuff. Yeah, Everything. Exactly. So that anger is legitimate. And then you say, well, why is that? And you say, well, let's sit down for a 14-week seminar and we'll go through some very detailed <laughs> monetary theory. And, you know, it's, yep. just, you, yep. it's very hard to grasp. So I, I do want to legitimize the anger that people have and- and I honestly think if people had a better grasp of, well, why is it my life getting harder? There would be riots in the street, but it's it's so hard to see. And I don't think anyone clearly mm. sees it because it is so nebulous and complicated and dynamic. Yep. And I don't want to, please don't think that I'm saying, oh, I, I see what everyone else doesn't see. <laughs> I, I don't say, I don't, I'm not, I mean, I've got, I've got my opinion like everyone yep. else yep. does, but, yep. but it is, it is so difficult, but I, I, I feel it's, it's mm-hmm. a bit of a not a deliberate switch and bait and switch, but it is. I think there's a there'd be a lot of parties that are glad that the supermarkets and Qantas are getting all copping all the heat, when maybe the more influential factors behind this phenomena is just not not no one's no one's looking at, and they're thinking, good, good, <laughs> you get you cop all the blame. Um, so it, it is a, it is a bit of a frustration that we don't have more mature broader, deeper conversations about, well, why is everything getting or seemingly getting worse for so many people? What are the root causes and what can we do about it? A supermarket inquiry is not going to fix that, right? It's not. Printing up squillions of dollars and giving everyone, regardless of their personal financial situation, you know, vouchers for their kids to do swimming lessons and that kind of nonsense, particularly the States did and everywhere else. And in the US, handing everyone a $1,600 stimulus check, it's just sort of like there are, there are consequences to these actions. And we're, we're, we're dealing, we're taking our medicine in a lot of ways. Now, I'm not saying they're the only factors, but they're big mm. factors. But they're the factors that, that no one talks about, which, which I find frustrating. It is just yes, and I, I yeah, I don't. I, I feel better having had a rant, mate. Just if you, yeah, you, you care about public policy, yeah. you, you'll 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 ask people to actually do stuff that matters. And you know, is this as I say, is there, is there a kernel of truth here? Yes. Are the numbers real? Yes. Is it is it anything close to the biggest issue or sizable issue that everyone's talking about? No. No. What's happening? Talk back hosts and politicians and journos are grandstanding. Those who hate profits are grandstanding because they think they can possibly get away with it because maybe there's a groundswell here and they can make their political points or their ideological points. Yep. There is very, very, very little in the way of someone objectively saying, I have really seriously thought about the challenges facing the Australian economy and society. Mm. And this one is the one we should talk about because this is the one that if we fixed, would have the biggest impact on Australians. It is just yep. absolute nonsense. As an aside, this is why difficult 
economic times are so dangerous, not just because of the impact it has on our well-being, mm. but it just leads to political populism. That's, I mean, that's what you're saying, right? It's, it's a yep. populist kind of um, uh, response to this where, you know, we, 500 years ago, we all would have grabbed our pitchforks and marched up to the castle with torches in our hands, right? Like, and, and now we're sort of doing it and railing on, on social media, but it is, there's a lot of anger. It's just very poorly directed, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I agree. I feel better now. Mate, will, uh, will you come back on Sunday? Can we, can we talk about some other things that maybe our listeners have, uh, have raised for us to chat about instead? I, I, always, I always really enjoy the mailbag episode. So yeah, let's, let's give a shout out for more questions to come through as well. We shall do that. By the way, quick heads up. There might be something special in the works. I can't say too much just yet. Suffice it to say, if you think the pod machine is cool, Imagine if you could have this podcast without the pod machine. That sounds weird. That sounds interesting. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder if people. I can't. I can't say anything else. All right. I'm leaving it there. See you on Sunday. Until then, full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.